This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. And here we are with another episode of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. In fact, it's another in a series of interviews we've done for Sumeru Books. Sumeru Press is dedicated to publishing and distributing Buddhist books and art. Based in Canada, it celebrates and supports all traditions and lineages. They've also been involved in a variety of Buddhist community development projects collaborating with the University of Toronto program in Buddhism, psychology and mental health, and have collaborated with that university's religious studies department. They've also been involved in global eco-Buddhist initiatives. Peter Fenner, Diane Harkey and today's guest Ken Bradford are all writers for Sumeru, as will be our follow-up and final episode for them with Douglas Boyd on Pyrrhonism and Stoicism. Hmm. So, what about today's guest? Ken Bradford, PhD, is a clinical psychologist offering advanced training workshops and lectures across the world in contemplative existential psychotherapy. He's now retired, but had a private psychotherapy practice for 25 years, was an adjunct professor at John F. Kennedy University and the CIIS, co-director of Maitri Psychotherapy Institute and teaching associate with Jim Bugenthal. Ken has also been a practitioner in the Theravada and Tibetan Buddhist tradition since way back in 1975, that's one year before I was born, and engaged in introducing meditative sensibilities, interesting way to phrase it, and non-dual wisdom into the experience near practice of psychotherapy since 1988. This man's been at it for quite a while, and that will come across in our conversation, which turned out to be surprisingly interesting. Why surprising? Well, you know, when you do an interview because you're kind of asked to do it, it's not really based on some kind of yearning or desire to engage somebody in a conversation on a specific topic. You never know what you're going to get. It really is more like work. But I found Ken to be an articulate and thoroughly nice person with some interesting ideas and very much game for the conversation we had. Now, the book we spoke about primarily was Opening Yourself, The Psychology and Yoga of Self-Liberation. Buddhist Insight, Existential Therapy, and Dzogchen. But Ken has written a bunch of books, including The Eye of the Other, Mindfulness-Based Diagnosis, 
and the question of sanity, listening from the heart of silence, non-dual wisdom and psychotherapy, and various articles addressing therapeutic courage, the play of unconditional presence in existential integrative psychotherapy. And there you go. Now, I challenge Ken on some of these terms he uses. We talk about whether it's even possible to have unconditional awareness. Heidegger gets a mention, as of course does existentialism. Authenticity, compassion, identity, samsara, and lots more. One of the preparations for reading this, which was, well, less useful than I thought it might be, but it's always interesting to mention, is an article by the infamous author from the Speculative Non-Buddhism Project, Tom Pepper, in a critique of the Buddhist, well, psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, Mark Epstein. The text was entitled, Traumatized by a Piece of Toast, which made me chuckle, and I'll read you a quote from that text just to get you going. The goal of spiritual activity then, and of Western Buddhism, and the therapy of the unhappily affluent, is to provide a practice in which they can believe themselves to be free of material conditions, detached and true to a timeless self, uncreated by social systems. Great critique, love that. Let's see if Ken has something to respond to it, at least when looking at this idea of a timeless self which is a topic that I will certainly be continuing to explore in the future. Here it is. Enjoy. We are going to be talking quite a bit today about a book that you wrote uh, called Open Yourself, The Psychology and Yoga of Self-Liberation. And I'd like to start by actually picking up on a, a quote that starts off the first chapter of your book here at the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. We like to discuss Buddhism and philosophy. And this quote, I believe, comes from a French philosopher, Henri Bergson. And I'm going to read it to you and then attach a question to the end. So the quote is the following. Fortunately, some are born with spiritual immune systems that sooner or later give rejection to the illusory worldview grafted upon them from birth through social conditioning. They begin sensing that something is amiss and start looking for answers. Inner knowledge and anomalous outer experiences show them a side of reality others are oblivious to, and so begins their journey of awakening. Each step of the journey is made by following the heart instead of following the crowd and by choosing knowledge over the veils of ignorance. Now, there's quite a lot going on in that quote, but I'd, I'd like to keep it simple, mm. Ken. Good. What sort of awakening do you think Henri was pointing to? And does it resonate with your own conception of this journey of awakening? Well, I think he was pointing to the fact that we wind up, uh, virtually all of us, being entranced in a consensus reality. What Heidegger refer referred to as Das Mann, the they. And in the throes of that, we find ourselves outside of ourselves, following our sense perceptions, our, our objects, objects of awareness, and we lose touch with the subjectivity that 
is able to objectivize. And so we're lost in an objective, reified uh, reality, um, oblivious to the fact that we're the ones creating it. And on the basis of that, then we get caught in wanting this thing, not wanting that thing, getting what we don't want, like uh, blame and pain, for instance, and striving after what we do want, such as praise or pleasure. Uh, but of course, none of that's uh, going to be lasting. And so we spend our whole lives chasing one thing and running from another. And I think Bergson um, was you know, basically pointing, maybe he was pointing with his hip <laughs> or his elbow, um, that there's an option to this. Uh, this is a, there's an alternative that this reality is um, arbitrary. It's not our basic reality. It's our constructed reality. And um, I think he was hip to that. Hmm. Now, you've been a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist, if I'm not mistaken, for much of your life. That's right. I'd like to know, though, what is what exactly is contemplative existential psychology and how might how might it differ from other forms of psychotherapy you know the general public might be more familiar with well the uh so there's two parts to that the contemplative and then the existential and the existential part is really a focus on experience what's actually happening rather than what do we think is happening and so there's a, a privileging of felt experience as opposed to conceptual experience. Um, the meanings we make, the concepts that we make of our situation are important, uh, but those are a doorway in to how we're holding those attitudes we have about ourselves and about others um, that lead to situations of, of such as depression or chronic anxiety, stuff that keeps, you know, niggling and bugging us. Uh, we want to get underneath those storylines and get into um, the root of how we're living in our projections or our objectifications and um, try to track truer to our inner sense, our felt sense. The contemplative part is the way of doing that. That we have to relax this 24-7 conversation we're having with ourselves, this self-talk. If you know you look we look closely, whether whether during the day or whether in our dreams at night, we're in this self-constructed um, universe that's concept bound. So we want to loosen that bondage. And we loosen that through a meditative awareness or a contemplative awareness um, by tuning into our felt senses, tuning into our regular senses and our feelings, and letting our awareness become refined. So this, of course, is the main practice of uh, Buddhism uh, in terms of a meditation practice that we want to become more mindful in the service of accessing a less concept-bound awareness, more intuitive, more felt, more spacious. 
more open and free. And so psychotherapy, um, the way I practiced it and the way I taught it, was really to privilege that kind of attunement, felt attunement, rather than bouncing from one idea to another, which is, um, you know, just kind of is like chasing your own tail sometimes. So um, for lack of a better word, I just talked about that as um, contemplative. Mm -hmm. So existential obviously uh, has a link to quite a broad movement within philosophy. Are you bringing that into that kind of practice as well? Or is it primarily about exploring phenomenologically uh, the experience of just being as you are within the process of this psychological relationship? In in terms of a therapy exchange, it's really more the more the uh, phenomena, phenomena <laughs> phenomenological approach or experiential is a kind of a more is a better word for talking about what that therapy is and so the philosophy behind it i don't necessarily talk about that with uh, clients unless they're interested in um, existentialists themselves but it it serves as um, a reference system for therapists to rely on um, to inform them so they can also escape from the kind of uh, positive scientific view that most psychology adheres to, which is which is very much based on the Cartesian principle. Um, so it's a dualistic vision through and through, and then there's this ideal for the therapist to be uh, neutral, which is the same attitude of a scientific research uh, researcher to be objective. And so this creates... Um, this really just creates more of a problem sometimes uh, by uh, giving energy to divided divided consciousness. Mm-hmm. So, what's different then in the role that that you take if you're if you're challenging the the status quo that calls for this kind of neutrality or objectivity? What changes for you as the therapist? Well, it's the same it's the same thing that we want to change for the client in terms of rather than following the content of what a person brings in, maybe they have a relationship problem and there's this story about it and that happened. And you can go on and on um, about the stories. Mm -hmm. And so the thing to do is to then focus on how somebody's holding that story. Like, uh, for instance, uh, I might make an intervention or a response on the level of, oh, that really seems to be upsetting for you, whatever the story is. And so as the therapist, I have to be tuned in to that person's emotional space. And so empathy and intuition become the primary uh, forms of cognizance rather than intellect uh, and conceptual um, intelligence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I'm not wrong, uh, Bergson uh, spent quite a bit of his time arguing for the role of intuition. Uh, I guess that's not a, a coincidence in your choosing his uh, quote. Right. Yep. Sure. Throughout the West, you know, there's, there's mystics all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, what they, but what they don't have in general is a path. They have, they've had glimpses. They've had views. 
And depending on who it is, maybe they've had several glimpses. But it becomes very hard if you have a glimpse, for instance, of non-dual wisdom of Buddha nature. You have a, an aha moment. All that's going to pass. And so in general, these sort of Western seers um, are lacking a path. And somebody even of the magnitude of uh, Martin Heidegger understood that. And at the end of his life, he was explicitly looking for a path. Um, of course, he could have found one in terms of the Buddhism that he drew, he himself drew from uh, in East Asian uh, Zen uh, sources, mm -hmm. but he didn't. And so that's where Buddhism has a huge advantage because there's all kinds of paths suited to all kinds of people's uh, proclivities and their capacities for being, uh, what would we say, nak nakedly present uh, and open, empty open. Um, because people, we all have different capacities for that. And so where psychotherapy can come in, also basic meditation, is in the service of being honest with what is really our capacity. And what I've noticed is we tend to err in two different directions. People drawn to the higher teachings, like non-dual teachings, can sometimes overestimate <laughs> their capacity. Whereas I think the bigger majority of people underestimate our capacity uh, for simply um, being present. So the paths, there's all kind of paths, you know, that cultivate depending on where someone's at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are certainly um, an endless number of practices that can be drawn out of the, the multitude of schools of Buddhism, for sure. Well, thinking about Heidegger, I, th I thought that comment was interesting about him uh, looking for a path, but I'm sure that that would have run up against his nationalism and his commitment to the kind of romantic ideal of, of German power and identity and being. But uh, I, th I do agree with you. I think there's an interesting tension there, actually, between intellectuals, of course, um, those who have experiences which we might describe as mystical, and then the availability of not just practices or a path, as you said, but a, a community of folks that can perhaps help them navigate those kinds of experiences and contextualize them in ways that are meaningful. I was having a conversation with another guest uh, recently about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and I'm sure you know something about him, mm. but he was, my mm. God, a tormented soul, if ever there, there were one. Is. But he was also, you know, an incredible mind and somebody who veered towards, uh, well, something I guess we could also define as mystical or or going beyond at least this sort of identification with the, the self as a this kind of self-existing object that Buddhism points to so successfully. Um, now, you also taught this, this topic at graduate school, uh, contemplative existential psychology. And if I'm not mistaken, we're, we're talking about 25 years plus here, which is quite something. And this is a very broad question, so perhaps you can uh, just pick out one or two examples. But I'm always interested in how a person's understanding of topics that are profoundly meaningful to them evolve over time. So how has your understanding 
of it evolved and matured during that period. And although you've retired uh, quite recently, if I'm not mistaken, you've obviously come away with some some key learnings, some core learnings. Boy, there's a lot. I, a lot I could uh, take <laughs> sure. from, from from that launch pad there. Well, one thing that just pops to mind is in the early 90s, I think 91 or 92, I was at one of the big psychology conferences um, in Washington, D.C., the American Psychological Association Conference, and I was on a panel. And um, I was trying to introduce Buddhism, and I did my best, through uh, existential phenomenology. Mm. And the one one sort of brassy person in the audience um, said, well, how did, how did you, um, how do you actually experience these things? And, and then I had to admit that what the existential phenomenological approaches are pointing to, I was able to touch and experience through Buddhist practice, through meditation practice, without the meditation practice, both kind of like a basic practice like mindfulness, which was my base, but also through higher practices like Dzogchen, which I um, stumbled into at a ridiculously uh, young age. And of course, that's the practice that goes very direct to Buddha nature, to awareness as such. I said, it's by virtue of my spiritual practice that I know what these guys are really talking about and not just have it be a philosophy, you know, a concept but a living reality. And he said, well, then, you know, why don't you just cut to the chase? <laughs> and um, instead of talking all this, you know, Western philosophy, go to Buddhism. And I had no answer for him, except that fast forward 15 years or more, these days, if I want to introduce somebody to existential uh, thought such as Heidegger or Martin Buber, for instance, uh, and even Nietzsche to some extent, I will go through uh, Buddhism because at this point in time, Buddhism is more widely understood than um, these Western forms of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of this arc of practice, I would have to say my teaching just uh, steadily shifted from being mm, philosophical and psychological in a, in a meta-psychological sense to being more and more experienced near. And I would, of course, when I'm in the graduate schools, I would be using philosophical terms and psychological terms, but really the whole focus is on you know, getting out of the head dropping that center of gravity. I mean, we are so, we live in such virtual realities these days, and it's only getting more intense, uh, you know, from the neck up. And so dropping down into the heart, into the belly, into the bones. And then these uh, sometimes rarefied concepts become accessible. And so over the, the course, I would have to say, there's been that general shift for me, um, because I'm, I have a proclivity to philosophy, mm. and so I've had, I've had to, you know, kind of wean, wean myself <laughs> from the intellectual high uh, 
get into more of the the nitty gritty, which often, you know, is um, mixed in terms of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's why a lot of particularly bright people, uh, philosophically inclined people prefer to be, you know, in talking about theory or talking about philosophy rather than dealing with their own mixed feelings, which um, is a shame because that's really where the energy is. Um, yeah. This, the stuff we've suppressed or repressed, uh, if we can loosen that up, uh, that just fuels um, what to say, and uh, a lightening of our being. That's interesting what you said, and uh, I want to respond with two things. The first one uh, being that uh, that's kind of been my experience too with intellectual culture and life, although uh, I'd like to think perhaps things are improving, at least for some people. My relationship with philosophy and, let's say, the, the joys of the intellect has changed. I found myself, I would say, returning to it after starting off with phenomenology myself and looking at existentialism as so many young people do, and then um, engaging in lots of Buddhist meditation and retreat. Uh, and I think now, after sort of going through uh, various phases with that, I'm now in my mid-40s, I, I came back to, let's say, our intellectual inheritance as a culture, as a, mm. as a human culture. Mm-hmm. And I experience it quite differently. I find myself almost reading the works of different uh, figures that I'm attracted to, and at one period, the, the Heidegger was one of those, almost like um, a koan. So rather than, my, I don't know, try and struggle through reading an entire book by Martin Heidegger, for example, Being in Time, um, I'll try and allow my intuition to, to guide me to pick out key phrases, concepts, or ideas, and, and allow them to be objects of contemplation. And I found that has radically altered my relationship with intellectual life, and it's it's uh, it's no longer a retreat, so to speak, from the emotional or the body, but becomes actually a way of almost um, expanding my appreciation for human creativity, intelligence, and, and culture more broadly. That's, that's certainly um, one experience I've had. I don't know if that, that would resonate with you at all. Um, in terms of you changing the way you approach these two spheres, let's say it that way, of of starting off, you know, with philosophy and then then going to Buddhism and and now Buddhism allows you to talk about those things more. Uh, I'm not a huge expert on Martin Buber. I wonder if you could say I don't if and if not feel free uh, to decline, but I wonder if you could say how you might do that in explaining his idea about the philosophy of dialogue, which is something I've been curious about but don't really know much about. I w- I would approach that based on what you just shared about how you um, relate, dialogue with, like a philosopher, Mm -hmm. whether it's Heidegger or Buber, that you don't go cover to cover, like, you know, methodically, but you'll wait to see what resonates with you. And I really like that. I think that there's an authenticity to that that's not so driven, not so mm, pious, (laughs) you know, trying to really understand Heidegger. But when you pause, it resonates with you. And so now it's like Heidegger's there, but you're tuning into you, whatever the resonance was, 
right? And so you will put the book down and then you'll contemplate what that is. And so now you're in dialogue with Heidegger. You're not just becoming whatever a Heidegger scholar, which is very passive, really. There's an act, there's an activeness to it. And I think that in that exchange, that dialogue um, is the key to opening up. And as I under, as far as I understand Buber, which is maybe not, um, I'm certainly no expert in Buber either. But that's what he understood, that it's, it's in the flow. Now, a thing about Martin Buber, which may not be uh, widely understood, is when he was a, and he was a young man, he got so involved in Taoism that he translated Chuang Tzu. This is bef way before he became, uh, you know, I and thou, and all of his, his sort of Judaic um, blossoming. His foundation is Taoism. And of course, that's all about flow. And I suspect his emphasis on dialogue, on the in-between, uh, has been was influenced. And he actually was, he, he unlike Heidegger, who tried to hide his um, East Asian roots, Buber never tried to hide it. He just, through his whole life, he goes, well, this is, this is where I'm coming from, um, as well as uh, Judaism, um, which is kind of refreshing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, this is, uh, of course, psychotherapy is, is totally about dialogue, and not about a therapist imposing their values. I mean, I, I know that that's commonly done, but the kind of uh, therapy that I like and the kind that also seems to be really blossoming around the world, especially in California here, but I think around the world, is really dialogical, where the therapist comes down to the same level and um, dares to have a personal relationship um, with the client. And in that dialogue, in that exchange, something is more likely to open up, uh, I, we could say through the heart or through the belly. Uh, the connective tissue between human beings is expedited. Um, so that's like very formal in the psychotherapy. But I think in general, dealing with these script, whether it's philosophy or what is called scripture, which is basically philosophy in, for instance, Buddhism, is best done in a dialogue in the way that you practice it. That you're drawn to a text, so already there's a connection. And so you read a bit and then put it down and check on it. And that can be a meditation that's like semi-formal, not sitting cross-legged on a cushion, but also not just spacing out and going following a train of thought, but going under a kind of conceptual um, stream and allowing the, the, the deeper currents in the stream of consciousness um, to be activated, to tune into that. Uh, that, it seems to me, that's how we open up. Otherwise, we just accumulate more knowledge. Uh, and it, knowledge doesn't necessarily um, 
help us open and see the unconstructed nature of who we are back of all our ideas and opinions and so forth. Mm -hmm. The word dialogical is is also, I think, really important as a teaching function as well. As you were describing, it's it's about establishing a quality of relationship with anything, you know, whether it be an idea or a concept, but also just any kind of text, really. Yeah, I hope you're right. I hope this is uh, emerging as something that, that makes more sense to people globally, because it tends to disrupt that division between, you know, experts and non-experts, right? The the learner and the learned in there the kind of duality between them where knowledge is, is almost a product or a commodity that is passed from one person to another. This is, this is quite different what, you, what you're pointing to. Now, let's talk about therapy a little bit more uh, because if I were thinking about therapy and, and Buddhism, despite what you've been saying, I think there, there are obviously some tension points uh, between them as well as meeting points. Often the religious and the spiritual are concerned with, with things that may not be appropriate within the space of, of a therapeutic session, whether it be, I don't know, certain forms of uh, transformation, disruption, uh, but also the idea that um, there's a commitment to the community and the wider world, which is obviously a key feature of, of the more established religions. And perhaps you disagree with this, but therapy in its broadest way tends to be concerned with aiding an individual manage their relationship with themselves and um, the world, perhaps with less dysfunction, uh, heal trauma and overcome personal problems. Have you given much, I mean, you must have, right? <laughs> That's what the conversation's revealing so far, but I have this question anyway, so I'll, I'll say it as written. But have you given much mm-hmm. thought to the, the tension between what can be very divergent goals? Oh, you bet. <laughs> so we... So we have to first of all recognize the the, the critical difference between mm, spirituality, we could say, or certainly Buddhism, which I really understand, because you know different religions have different, um, you know, they can have different uh, goals, and so in Buddhism, the clear, outstanding goal is this awake uh, awakening. Uh, to non-dual, the non-dual basis of our dualistic confusion. And so the biggest difference between psychology and the Dharma, for instance, is psychology wants us to get get along better in samsara and to resolve or dissolve uh, trauma and so forth, but to get on better in samsara, not to get out, the, the notion that you could ever get out of conditioned reality is beyond psychology. It doesn't. It just doesn't go there. So it's it's a it's preliminary. It can be as it was for me, uh, very important for clearing up some of uh, you know my big uh, inner conflicts and confusions that you know we uh, appropriate as children. And it's really effective for that, in some cases more effective than um, sitting, uh, you know, sitting on a cushion for a half hour a day and even going on retreat for a week from time to time um, doesn't necessarily drop uh, the awareness down into the unconscious. 
into where we're, our deeper holdings that you know we're not even in touch with. So there's a huge value in that. And of course, somebody who is really uh, sincere and devoted to meditation, the same thing will happen. <clears throat> you don't need therapy to open up uh, by any means. We have centuries now of experience where people have been practicing uh, some form of meditation and have opened themselves to their deeper stuff, but they don't, they don't talk about it in the same way. So there's also a language um, that psychology has and they don't, psychology doesn't necessarily promote this, but if you look, a lot of the motivations are, yes, it's self, it's self-interest, all uh, individual psychology, but often we want to kind of get back, and this is a, this is a typical phrase that's used, return to previous level of functioning. So somebody, for instance, has an anxiety having anxiety attacks or they're having a crippling de depression. And so the overriding concern often, not always, but often in psychology is to return that person to the previous level of functioning so that they can get up in the morning and go to their job and continue um, to support this, their society, their culture. But if the culture is sick or it's distorted, uh, to begin with, then psychology winds up being a form of social hygiene, um, a, adapting someone to a, to a society that's already sick, as in many ways, it's obvious that our societies are, are just confused and in conflict with themselves. Politically, this is like very much in our face. But also in terms of the, the goals of materialism and then ego, it's, it's, you know, social media and so forth is just so, you know, promoting of um, self-interest and uh, popularity. This is not that healthy. It's all temporary. We might get a lot of likes or we might, you know, prosper in some way in society. But whatever we gain, however we're praised, will pass. And this is a huge difference when you get into spirituality in general, and Buddhism in particular. You don't cultivate those things because they're not going to help us in the end. They're going to pass. Everything is impermanent. Everything will pass. All our accomplishments, all our failures, and so on. And so we have to... Uh, we have the opportunity of seeing through all of that and gaining a much deeper equanimity uh, with our situation and befriending this, this uh, juggernaut of time. We're hurtling through time, right? You can say sickness, old age, and death, which is true. But all the, yeah, we're getting older and our time will be gone. And so uh, this is where spirituality in general excels and, and supersedes um, psychology. And in terms of culture, you know, you're bringing up, I think, a very rich uh, question. Um, and we should not overlook the fact that the historical Buddha created a counterculture 
he didn't he didn't try to fix the culture he was in through social uh, social justice movement. Now I know this is going to be quite controversial to your listeners. <laughs> Whenever I bring this up, it always gets some gets some uh, blood flowing. <laughs> Rather, yeah, than, than creating a social justice momentum, he created a whole different culture, a monastic culture, where it's you cut your hair, you give away your clothes, you give away your money to, to join the Sangha originally. You gave up everything, your family. And then whatever your status was, you gave that up too. Wherever you were in the caste system, it didn't matter. What sex you were, it didn't matter. Race, didn't matter. None of those usual markers um, by how we judge people were mattered. Everybody wearing the same saffron robe, and um, you got nothing. You have your begging bowl. That's what you've got. <laughs> and so you might not get enough food someday. It's possible. And so, there's, so there was um, an alternative to the dominant culture that the Buddha um, initiated. And it's like, we're going a different way. We're going a way that's aimed towards release, towards the cessation of grasping, the cessation of suffering. Because the regular culture is no way it's gonna change. So he just said, well, leave them, leave, let's leave it alone. I'm not gonna bother with it, not gonna criticize it, not going to try to improve it. Um, we're going to go whole a whole nother way here, and that's really pretty radical. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it does serve it does serve you know the greater good. It serves society, but in um, you know in a going a different path. Again, there's a lot there, right? So we have to pick and choose, otherwise we'll be here for days. <laughs> um, That's right. So you mentioned a couple of times unconditioned reality, right? Yes. And you've also made reference to Zogchen, and that's part of the sort of subheading of your book. Um, Zogchen uh, relies quite a lot on this idea that you know, reality is dreamlike and that everything is energy. And that, in a sense, we go beyond this separate self or this self-existing self, which is an illusion, and we experience everything as, as a dream. Is that the way you think about it, or, or is it something else? So when you're talking about unconditional reality, are you just talking about that as something different to conditioned reality, so the, the way we relate to reality through concepts and language, or am I missing something? Well, that's you've really put your, your finger on uh, the heart of the whole thing, the pulse that goes through from original Buddhism um, way back in the day. We call it Hinayana. Uh, because right away, the Buddha was clear that, and said so, that this uh, world is like a star at dawn. It's like a dream, like a bubble in a stream, like a mirage. Um, not as solid as we think it is. So the conditioned reality, the basically the reality we live in almost all the time, um, we create it, but we don't notice that we're creating it. We don't notice that we're participating in a reification 
of our experience. And that reification is another way of talking about conditioned existence. So rather than facing out, looking out to an objective world, including our ideas about ourself, which is in some sense objectifying ourself, the turn, the critical turn, not only in Buddhism, but in contemplative traditions of all stripes, is to turn that awareness around and say, you know, who says so? <laughs> who, who um, where is the source of this world that's so frustrating for us? Um, and even when we get what we want, uh, we get uptight because then we don't want to lose it. And so that's not uh, going to work either. So we need to turn awareness around. And as we say, uh, we use this language, go within. Um, it's a kind of a rough language, but it kind of gets the point across that we, we look into the looker. And then uh, discovering that the looker can't be pinned down. So this is very famous in Buddhism, the no self. Uh, that often gets kind of misunderstood as uh, like there's like there's no self uh, consciousness or self awareness, but it really means there's no there's no fixed perspective that we're coming from. Everything's fluid and uh, conditioned by this, but could also be conditioned by that. And so there's a suppleness to awareness that when we look back of our particular perceptions, whether they're from our senses or whether they're in our mind or our intuition also, um, we see that it's all a flux. Uh, it's all happening within awareness. And so Dzogchen will say, spacious, that our nature is a spacious potentiality. It's like space in that there's no boundary and we are open. This word uh, shunyata gets translated as emptiness, um, which is fair, but it also, it doesn't quite get to the vastness, the openness of our nature, which is like space, but it's unlike space in that it's cognizant. There's a knowing quality. Mm. So, the, so, these, so this is where Dzogchen like, cuts right to the chase. And um, or as the Buddha said, he said, um, this mind, O monks, is luminous, but it's defiled by adventitious obscurations. So the two things, are, the whole of the Dharma is right in that sentence. The mind, this mind, O monk, is luminous. It is beyond measure, beyond limits, inherently free. But we don't notice that because of these adventitious, these secondary, these compulsive obscurations. So unless we let go and loosen our insistence that how we see things is the way things are, and open ourselves to the incredible uh, mystery, the incomprehensible 
beatitude of existence. Um, we're just going to be uh, caught in different kinds of runarounds, different kinds of conditions. And so um, mm. the goal, right, is to befriend the conditions because then we say, oh, I don't want to be have greed, hatred, or delusion. Now we're, cre now we're creating another form of aversion, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, yeah. just more, it's just more aversion. And so, no, no, we have to befriend it. We have to we have to tune in, lighten up, uh, and befriend our um, imp imperfections. Which is you know I love this way you've named your podcast. <laughs> we ne we need to befriend our imperfections, warm and warm up to all the things that either we don't like about ourselves or those things that have been too hot to handle. Right, we've been overwhelmed. Um, so many people, we have these traumas, so many people of various degrees that have just been overwhelming. And so we've had to put them out of our mind. We just couldn't handle them. It was too much. We have to reclaim them. We have to open to them and let them breathe and let them go. And then as we do that, and therapy can be useful, meditation can be useful in that. As we begin to, to loosen our grip on how we're holding, whatever it is we're holding, even though we don't even know that we're holding, this is where meditation is superior, by the way, to um, therapy, that when you're sitting quietly, you can tune into subtle holdings that are harder to get to when you're in a dialogue, a verbal dialogue with, say, a therapist, because um, this stuff isn't necessarily verbal or conceptual it's it's felt it's kind of in our skin and so we notice tensions right we're doing you're meditating particularly in retreat but also i think just in general you begin to notice tensions you're holding in the body tightness in the muscles and then below that oh there's also it's related my my muscular tensions related to an emotional holding my emotional holdings relating to something I've known, but I haven't been able to digest. And so in that way, tuning in meditatively, contemplatively, then all this stuff can loosen up. And it's the loosening that's the main thing. It's not getting, trying to get to whatever nirvana or an unconditioned place, a Buddha place, but rather to let the system unfurl to let the system loosen itself because our because it wants to and i'm introducing a whole nother thing with that um that if we tune in to our heart of hearts what or we could use the language what our soul wants our soul wants to relax our soul wants to open our soul, our inner minds, our mind stream is geared to evolve. Everything is evolving. Uh, even when it devolves, then we have to then recover from that. There's, it's, there's this um, very weird uh, enlightened intent, which psychology uh, couldn't even talk about and which frankly is hard to talk about in general in Buddhism, and you really only get this in Dzogchen. 
uh, Mahamudra understands it. Prajnaparamita understands it. Um, but it's not explicated. It's in these, in these awesome Dzogchen Tantras where somebody uh, like a Lanchempa, for instance, will talk about the, the, uh, what, the unit, what the cosmos is doing. And we can either be in sync or we can be in tension with the unfolding. I hope I'm making sense. A, there is a glory to our to existence, to awareness, and we can settle into awareness, undistracted, not caught up in our objects of mind and senses, mm-hmm. but tuning into the the cognizant uh, capacity. Um, and then we can let these enlightened qualities unfurl. It's not only a question of getting free from samsara. It's also a question, talk about contributing to the greater good, of letting these incredibly subtle uh, uh, enlightened qualities, what, which are sometimes referred to as the Buddha bodies, the Dharmakaya, and so forth, um, let those qualities unfurl in ways that are very hard to talk about. The difficulty in talking about it is obviously part of the myth-making of the Buddha. He refuses to talk about what necessarily comes after death and doesn't really make much mention of the soul. It's interesting just how many even Buddhist teachers end up falling back on this word, the soul. Because <laughs> what other term do we use? I mean, even even if you're talking about things like unconditioned reality, I mean, obviously that's a concept that we're using to try and get at something which, in its definition, should be beyond what's being described. So it ends up producing challenges, I think. It's good to be honest about them. And the first challenge is that it's difficult not to be, in a sense, aligned with or a practitioner of mysticism. We can call it Buddhist mysticism in this case. The ineffable, or that which cannot be described or captured by words, is is a feature of the human condition. And of course, the Christian mystics and the uh, Jewish mystics and Islamic mystics will have approached it in different ways, you know, using poetry or even music to make sense of it. And of course, in Buddhism, we do have these two great names for practices that seek to acquaint individuals and groups with it. And yet still end up referring, you know, sort of resorting to language, which is difficult to justify, I think, or difficult to talk about in a way that would satisfy the intellectual needs of, of something like ontology or, or metaphysics. I mean, I don't want to say too much more about that because I think we might just end up going around in circles. But I'm, I have a lot of sympathy for my more intellectual acquaintances who will critique that kind of talk. And, you know, I, I love their critiques because I find it enjoyable. And I find them hard to counter in many ways. And I'm also very cautious about you know, resorting to where well, you just have to experience it or you can only know it if you X, Y, or Z, because it sounds a bit elitist. And in a way, I guess it is, right? If you don't engage in certain kinds of practices or have some kind of experience in your life that propels you into something which is beyond words, and what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? You have, you have to kind of go on faith a little bit and say, okay, this guy's talking about Zogchen and non-conditioned glory and I've never had that experience. 
do I want to believe it or not? I find myself agnostic about it all, uh, Ken. Not not the reality of these experiences, but how we might settle on some kind of agreement about how we think about it. And uh, Buddhism has its its different ways, and of course, they're not always in agreement, right? I mean, the, you mentioned the earlier schools of right. Buddhism. They would be very critical of anybody talking about the soul. I don't even have a question in there. I'm just kind of voicing some of the thoughts that come out as a response to what you you were saying. Um, and that's, in a sense, a dialogical process in itself, right? So <laughs> that's right. There it is, right? There it is. But I think I could, I could draw out a question from there. There is a very rich philosophical tradition across the different Buddhist schools, which avoid the idea of a soul at all costs. How would you respond to that if somebody came up to you as a Buddhist and said, well, why are you using this word soul? What's that all about? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, totally. I'm totally sympathetic because it can't be found. A soul or a self, you know, you can't pin either of them down. So uh, I, I use that word um, carefully and sometimes a bit impulsively, like I just threw out you know, a few minutes ago. Um but I use it to get to something that there is no language for, except that in our Judaic Christian tradition, maybe uh, Islam too, I'm not sure, there's this, there's this idea of something back and deeper than our taken-for-granted reality. And so that word soul is often used to talk about that thing which can't, which can't be named. It's beyond concept, non-conceptual. So when I uh, when I like when I just used it there, it was to get it was to get to the to mystery, but to get to not only mystery, but that mystery is also exquisitely personal. Yeah, mystery. I, I don't think that solves the problem, but I think it's it's honest for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where to go with it, apart from move on to the next question, but thank you for your response. Well, the, the only other thing I, I, would, I would reference that, since we're talking about something like Dzogchen, is the, the key to gain access to Dzogchen is um, to see that there's nothing to see. And in the, in the non-seeing, for instance, of soul or truth or whatever it, it is, in seeing, there's nothing to see, recognizing that that non-seeing is already lucid and vast. And that is the key. But it can't, you, you couldn't say it exists. <laughs> and yet you could also couldn't say it doesn't exist. Yeah. And so um, there's a kind of a suspension um, there's something certainly about paradox in there, right? And the, the capacity to, to inhabit the paradox of existence, that those two things simultaneously exist. That's another way of thinking about non-duality. It's not the melting of difference into a single unified whole, but it's the capacity to experience a togetherness of different experiences without separating them out into discrete objects. And, and that is almost paradoxical for the human mind, right? Because there's difference and the sameness. Yes. And, and there it is. What do you do with that? Bingo. Yeah. You know you're on the right track. 
if you if you can feel in your flesh uh, vulner you're vulnerable. That you, as long as you're feeling like in you're in these waters and you're feeling vulnerable, okay, so far so good. But if you start to get you know kind of smug, uh oh, there's a a, a, a solidity has has snuck in, and you might you think like you know something. Um, and now you're in the reification again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's something else that, that I like to add when I, when I think about these topics more broadly is, I mean, you've used the word vulnerability. Um, and I think that's interesting. The other way I think about it is that it is keeping hold of our humanity mm. as a, a form of defense against, I mean, you said smugness, I might say aloofness. But it's that attempt to almost step aside or step apart and have the observer position again. And I think if you are going to meet the experiences of a human life through your body with an open heart, where the emotions are in a sense involved fully in that experience, as well as your perceptions, to do that without letting go of that that almost self-defensive position of trying to be above or apart from experience as it as it occurs and in that regard i think i think there's something to be said going back to a point you made earlier about uh, some practitioners aim too high when perhaps they need to uh, look at other practices and others of course have the potential to experience or engage quite naturally with the sort of practices that zogchen both contains and points to i think there's a a good place in there for thinking again about therapy this is certainly one claim you, 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 you do make, um, and perhaps we can return to it now, which is that psychological knowledge and therapeutic practice can actually be useful in the service of spiritual awakening. Um, would you say it's just along the lines of what we've been looking at now, of this softening, this opening, this being vulnerable, this allowing the body to experience again, or are there other ideas or applications that you'd also include there? No, I, I think you put your finger on the nub of it. In in the book, I um, I uh, describe my own experience as a Dzogchen practitioner, and going through you know it's many many years ago. I was going through a very wrenching divorce, uh, uh, where there was a, a child custody battle, which I had to engage. I had to engage that battle for the welfare of my children. And it just broke me. Uh, it just tore me apart such that my Dzogchen didn't work. I couldn't do it. I, I didn't have the capacity. I was way too upset. I was um, frightened and angry. And I was at real danger of hating the mother of my children. And so I... So I downgraded to uh, the Vipassana, and and that worked, but it didn't. But it didn't work strongly enough because I was in a hell realm, and I needed, I needed to to react. I needed to act, um, not just take my time on the cushion. And so that's when I discovered this Mahayana level practice of uh, Tonglen, mm. uh, studying with uh, Pema Chodron, for instance coming out of Trungpa, uh, but, uh, but it's everywhere. And so that really saved my bacon. Uh, being able to metabolize uh, 
really painful uh, emotions and and reactions and get out of the thinking about it, the, the runaround in the head underneath that into the felt sense. And that saved me. That really saved me. So I didn't get caught in either hatred, you know, or uh, fear. And I was able to muddle through with the benefit of that practice and I went back into therapy at the same time, um, which was well needed, both support, but also reality check. Uh, a therapist who was, she was able to reflect back that, you know, I was really doing the best that I could do uh, because I wasn't sure given what a mess everything was. I thought, you know, that should, maybe I should be doing something more. And so the therapist uh, dialogue, the therapist relationship was really helpful to me in addition to this Mahayana uh, practice, um, which wound up actually, uh, I, was, I was pounding this practice and I was teaching graduate uh, psychotherapy at the time. And, I, and I, so I brought it into the class, every class, I would bring it in, you know, significantly. <laughs> For myself, <laughs> but also I was sharing it with the students, and it turned out that the number of those students just got, you know, ignited by that practice, and they asked me after the class ended, um, could they continue? Could we continue? And so that was really where my Dharma teaching began, not Dzogchen, um, and not uh, mindfulness, but with the Tonglen, which then I realized the these students needed uh, mindfulness foundation. Um, and so then we also did, did that. And then later actually even wound up going into Dzogchen. So, um, yeah, the important thing is this honesty, Matthew, as you say, to really be honest with ourselves. Like, what do we really need is a question I ask myself. I also, what's, I ask, what's really good for me? What's really good for me? And so in these last years, um, many years, I have found what's really good for me is going on solitary retreat. Well, you've spoken about your own uh, suffering, and thanks for sharing that. And uh, compassion is, of course, the central theme in Mahayana Buddhism, cultivation of bodhicitta, is usually given as the wish for an end of suffering for others. I find compassion curious. Um, it's a term that outside of Buddhism we don't, we don't tend to use very much, right, in the English language. You, you might hear it occasionally used as a kind of token comment by the political class, but otherwise um, we <laughs> tend to use something else, right? There's this phrase I, I think I picked up off your uh, reading part of your book, which is empathic resonance. And going back to this idea of the dialogical approach, I mean, I think you can apply that to concepts within Buddhism too. And compassion is certainly one that I think uh, we'd all do well to, to have a dialogue with. Otherwise, it kind of risks becoming an abstraction or this kind of universal compassion, which if we return to what we were saying before about our basic humanity, that's, I don't think that's what we necessarily want to be getting at. I think that one way of making it more concrete is both to think of other terms for it, like empathic resonance, and also obviously to build a personal connection to it through connecting it to yourself and to those around you. Now, considering you've got this experience in both Buddhism and therapy, 
how would you approach the, just the weight of the world's suffering when thinking about compassion and bodhicitta and perhaps even the ideal of the bodhisattva? How do you think one can actually, in a human sense, remaining vulnerable, to use that term of yours, go about cultivating compassion so that they, they are not overwhelmed by that massive weight of, well, what seems to be just endless suffering and stupidity? Yeah, that's a really good question. You, the only way to do that with integrity is to do it from the inside out. And because you get to compassion, uh, real compassion, felt compassion, rather than, you know, like an idea, I mean, all beings, you know, be happy. It's easy enough to have an aspiration. But to really be in touch with the suffering of others, you need to be in, we need to be in touch, as far as I can tell, with our own suffering, with our own pain. And so here, this, this befriending of what Cousin Zakas would have called, you know, the whole catastrophe um, of our lives. And not just abstractly, but really um, viscerally. As we become more sensitive, um, then we can just organically we become more compassionate towards others. Then we can we can share that. We we can't. In fact, we can't help it. Now, this is where uh, your question, I think, becomes really relevant: is how do you bear it mm. without getting overwhelmed? And this is where we each have to play our own edge. And I think that is the key, to not be too far removed so that we're less, you know, we numb our feeling, we back off, but also not to go too far forward and keel, you know, keel over uh, where we wind up getting overwhelmed. And so we know we're, we're playing our edge when we get a little overwhelmed. That's how we know it's an edge. Otherwise, we're not, we're not sure. But we can we feel uh, we feel like even watching like a movie where there's some and it's easy to it's easy because there's so many movies that are miserable. There's so many movies that are like murder mysteries and like all this other kind of thing, uh, television so forth that that are really painful. And so the more sensitive we get, which is to say, the more we befriend our own sentience. And let ourselves be the sentient being that we are, the more um, we're going to be impacted, even by watching a play or a movie. And so that's a good gauge because we can just then we can just kind of see like what can we handle. And um, maybe we get to the point where we're sensitive, we're so sensitive that watching like so-called entertainment, which is really somebody else's trauma, they've made a story out of it and then we've, they made a movie and it's like a way of like dealing with our own trauma, which is, which is good, except that to what extent do we want to subject ourselves <laughs> to somebody else's trauma and, uh, yeah. and, be, and be broken open by it? Because if we're already broken open in terms of the Dharma, we're already right where we need to be. It's all about letting ourselves be open. And sometimes we can do that intentionally, but very, very often 
life gives us a hand. <laughs> it may not be the hand we were looking for, but life will break us open. And so we have the opportunity to, to befriend that tenderness, mm -hmm. that vulnerability. And that's particularly as uh, in the Mahayana, that's the path. In fact, that's a quicker path um, to, to dare to be sensitive, yeah, but then not to, you know, not to overdo it with some sort of spiritual ambition or psychological ambition of trying to what, you know, be a spiritual warrior, for instance. <laughs> we could think like, oh, we had to go, you know, more deeply into it. Well, yeah, but if it winds up, you know, then crashing the system, uh, it, it's not a good idea. So we need to play that edge and then um, and then let our intelligence out. So we find ourselves sensitive and in tune with people. And then we can say, oh, okay, I, but that's enough. I can't, I need to be quieter now. And that's also, um, that's really, we could say, our wisdom, our prajna uh, engaged. And so we would organically then just let it be, drop our agendas, drop our ambition, and not go forward. Maybe we don't go backward either, and just breathe. And as we're on that edge and we're breathing with our vulnerability, we're, we're actually in that moment uh, in an enlightenment, I would say, in an enlightenment process. Mm -hmm. The way that this is, the way this is talked about in um, psychology with the, with the biology, the biology of psychology is in a neurological sense of letting the, the system rewire neurons that fire together, wire together is the cliche. So, they fire together to the extent we let what's happening happen. And we don't try to manage our experience. And of course, this is the heart of basic meditation. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a short amount of time left. And we've been talking about quite a lot today. And a word that comes to mind, though, actually, in, in just listening to you now, but also uh, getting a feel for the entire conversation, is that resentment is, is quite a challenge. Mm. It comes to my mind also because when you or other teachers, or, or mystics for that matter, describing the kinds of qualities of relaxing out of the conditioned self, or rather our experience of that, because that's obviously all we have at the end of the day, these propositive states, these this emergence of, of what appears to be a kind of self-existing, natural emergence of positive emotions, right, of, of bliss. That's in Mahamudra, they talk about bliss and emptiness being companions, right? So as you step into these non-dualistic experiences of being open to the world and more fully within it, uh, bliss is a kind of natural consequence of that. Um, when you talk about overcoming suffering or making peace with these old stories of suffering and trauma, I think resentment does occur in some people. And I think there's a kind of resentment towards these ideas that we can simply, you know, experience Buddha nature or experience the authentic self or experience non-self and suddenly 
we feel good and everything's perfectly fine, thank you very much. I think in some cases there's validity towards it, in the sense that we do have, especially in America, this side to spirituality, both in terms of teachers and followers, often kind of looking for happiness and looking for the happiness trap. And there's not always necessarily a clear difference, I think, between people who stand outside that and look in. And they probably think it's all pretty much the same thing and that it's bullshit. I would say trust it. If you're somebody who, for all this, is just, you know, some kind of religious philosophy, and it doesn't correspond to your <laughs> to your own unhappy <laughs> experience, mm-hmm. I would say trust your, your suspicion and don't buy it. Um, but, but also, uh, don't, 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 um, de- don't uh, negate it. Uh, because you, just because you haven't had the experience doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So uh, don't accept it and don't reject it. But instead, trust your lived experience where um, whatever, something broadly unhappy or frustrating, the world is a bitch, we know that. It'll do anything to us and doesn't care. (laughs) That's true. The social world doesn't care. And also the elemental world doesn't care about us. That's important. And so realizing the frustratingness of existence, pay attention to that. Mm. Pay attention to that. And if you dare get closer to it, befriend it even more, whether through meditation, meditation is probably superior, but also uh, through real um, fierce therapy honest therapy what's really your experience as lived tuning into that calming your system calming your your runner mental runaround down so that you can tune into what's underneath it what's driving it and tune into that and forget about the zokchen it's irrelevant don't worry about tonglin basic meditation uh, is enough uh, it doesn't reflect on you in some way, like oh, you're not advanced. You could sometimes somebody can think that oh, I'm not. I get resent. I'm resented because you know this is advanced, and now I'm not. And you mother, <laughs> damn, I don't <laughs> like to feel like not special. Okay, well, forget <laughs> about that and tune in to the fact that how pissed off you get <laughs> when you're not feeling special, <laughs> and how miserable that state of mind is. Um, you know, for yourself and and be kind to that mind, which is so judgmental. Open up, be kind, befriend, be easier on yourself and forget about all this other stuff. Because then you might actually have more access than you know, in the sense that you may have had a moment where you were at peace. You may have had a moment where you're in fact ecstatic. Maybe you were making love. Maybe you were out in nature. Uh, maybe it happened, you know, when no one was looking and you were just sitting in your garden, and suddenly all was well with the world, 
and all manner of things were well with the world. You had a moment like that. I'll bet you did. Uh, but if you didn't, you still might. So, you know, keep your radar open. Keep your, keep your radar on. Um, keep your lights on. And uh, go slow. Great. Final question. Uh, we've been talking with Ken Bradford today and his book, Opening Yourself, which you heard is really a theme and certainly part of what uh, Ken was uh, pointing to in his conversation today. Uh, the Psychology and Yoga of Self-Liberation, Buddhist Insight, Existential Therapy, and Zogchen. Um, Who would be the ideal person to read your book, Ken? Let's finish with that. Well, I think it, um, it would help, first of all, if you're, if you're psychologically inclined, um, because the first half of the book has to do with the psychology of self-liberation. Um, and so there's psychology in there. So if you're not interested in psychology, mm, the first half of the book might not be calling to you. Uh, so that's one thing. But the other thing is to be interested in kind of um, liberation. However, however you define that, it doesn't even have to be Buddhist. Um, but that there's something that interests you. That the, the notion of, of freedom, of radical freedom, of radical authenticity um, interests you. You don't even have to have faith in it, right? You, but if you're interested in that, then the, then the yoga, the second part of the book, the yoga part, uh, might, might speak to you. So it would help to have both of those going. But you really don't need both. You only need, you know, one of the two of those. And then half the book is going to be relevant to you. And it's really the, it's the second half, the practical half, where I give many uh, examples, both from my therapy practice, how somebody opened up, but then also uh, meditation practices, contemplative practices on how you can do that for yourself. Um, so there is a, there's a bit of a self-help component to it, but um, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you're going to, it's probably going to challenge you. And so if you're up for a challenge, um, I think it might speak to you. And by the way, I'd, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, if, you know, even if you don't like it, uh, you can contact me. There's a way to contact me through my website. I I would be happy to engage in dialogue, uh, and am am happy to engage in dialogue with people who are sort of struggling with uh, opening up. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you, Ken. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and giving up some of your time to speak to us on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Matthew. I've really enjoyed our conversation this is me matthew o'connell and sponsor of the imperfect buddha podcast that's right it's my podcast and i'm sponsoring it hmm is that even possible well who cares i'm doing it and this is really a reminder that i coach mentor and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, 
I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality and religion. Much of what I have specialised in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools, well, they're really neo-shamanic tools, and concepts, and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.